The church is supposed to be a haven for the weak and the vulnerable, but what happens when it's not and the powerful prey on the weak? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and today I'm going to be speaking about the sex abuse crisis in the church, and joining me is author, speaker, and abuse advocate Mary DeMuth. As you probably know, sex abuse is not just a Catholic problem. The Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant church in the country, is reeling from a massive sex abuse scandal. An investigation by the Houston Chronicle found that in the past 20 years, dozens of pastors and deacons have sexually abused people in their care, and shockingly, the victims number more than 700. What's especially awful about these stories isn't just the pastors and the church leaders who abuse. That's bad enough. It's the pastors and the denominational leaders who protect them as well. Just recently, I reported that Brian Loritz, someone who's been accused by several eyewitnesses of covering up sex crimes, just got hired by Summit Church. That's the church where J.D. Greer pastors. J.D. Greer is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who pledged to end the pattern of sexual abuse and cover-up in the church. And then there's another story I recently reported concerning Dr. Anthony Moore. Dr. Moore got fired from the Village Church in Fort Worth, Texas, for secretly videotaping a male youth pastor in a shower. But Dr. Moore said he's sorry, cried some tears, and then his good friend, Dr. Thomas White, president of Cedarville University, hired Moore. And if some bloggers and I hadn't reported the story, Dr. Moore would probably still be teaching at Cedarville. He'd even be coaching the basketball team. And it makes you wonder, how many other leaders are in churches praying on the vulnerable? How many others know about the predators and do nothing? And how many sex abuse victims are there who are wounded and alienated from the church because of these wolves in shepherd's clothing? Well, I'm very much looking forward to exploring this topic with my guest today, Mary DeMuth. But before I do, I just want to take a minute to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marcourt of Barrington. If you're in the market for a car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcourt of Barrington, the most honest car dealership I know. Owners Dan and Kurt Marcourt are friends of mine, and I trust them implicitly. To view their entire showroom online, just go to buyacar123.com. Also, I want to let you know that Judson University is planning to resume in-person classes this fall for traditional, transfer, and adult students. And it's not too late to apply. You can choose from more than 60 majors and learn in a Christian environment known for its spiritual values, leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson is located just 36 miles outside Chicago on a beautiful 90-acre campus. To schedule a visit, just go to judsonu.edu slash visit. That's judsonu.edu slash visit. Well, again, joining me today is Mary DeMuth. Mary is a sex abuse advocate and author. She's also a sex abuse survivor and knows the deep pain and wounding that sex abuse causes. Her latest book is a devotional called Outrageous Grace Every Day. She also recently wrote We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to the Sexual Abuse Crisis. So Mary, welcome. I'm so glad you could join me. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, Mary, one reason I'm really excited to speak to you about today's topic is because you haven't given up in the church. Despite everything, you still believe in the bride of Christ. In fact, in your book, We Too, you write, I write this book not as an indictment against the church, but as one who dares to have prophetic imagination for what it can and should be. I love the church. Mary, why, after everything we've seen, especially in the past 
you know, 10, 15 years, why do you still love the church? Why do you still believe in the bride of Christ? It's the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth. It's how we experience the love of God is through the church. And unfortunately, there's been wolves in sheep's clothing who have marred the image of the church by hiding under the radar, so to speak, and looking like a lot of us. And I think that was one of the things that really struck me um, in the years of ministry that I've been in, where I've run into some of these folks. And it's very bewildering and excruciatingly painful to uncover someone who you thought was one thing and then was another. It can cause you to leave the church. And, and of course, you know, when you get to the idea of sexual abuse and cover-ups and all of that, it's no wonder people are leaving. Um, I have to say that as a sexual abuse survivor, my abuse did not happen within the walls of a church, although the boys that molested me were Mormons and uh, very strong Mormons. Mm. Um, so I don't have the same kind of brokenness as maybe someone who has been abused by a pastor or someone in the um, leadership in a church. And so perhaps I have a little bit more of an ability to stay in, but I have great empathy for those who have been molested or harmed through church leaders and cover-ups. Mm. And I know from speaking to a lot of sex abuse survivors in the church, they say often it's not even the abuse so much that wounded them. It's the people that then covered for the abuse over and over again. That's what was so disillusioning for them. And I'm sure you see that disillusionment when you're working with sex abuse survivors, don't you? Uh, all the time. It's rampant. And it all I have to do is think about Jesus and how he would respond to someone who's broken. You can find how he responds to broken people throughout the gospel. You see it in the narrative of the Good Samaritan. And I liken this to the babysitter that I told when I was five years old. So I was under her care. She was like the institution for me. And mm. I, it's very rare for a little five-year-old girl to tell someone that she's being sexually abused. Mm. But I told her. And she chose to look the other way, and she chose not to rescue me, and she continued to push me out into the arms of those perpetrators. And I think that's where that betrayal comes in. When someone who's supposed to protect you instead um, maligns or keeps letting you be harmed and does not intervene, it's an excruciating pain that's extremely difficult to get over. Mm. And there are so many, I know, even listening right now who are, are feeling that, and I want to get into you know, how we change that and also how we find healing, because I think that's so crucially important. But I kind of feel like there is an elephant in the room because J.D. Greer wrote the foreword to your book, We Too. And We Too is a great book. In fact, we're giving away five copies of We Too. And if you want to enter to win a copy of We Too, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com slash giveaway. Again, that's julieroys dot com slash giveaway. But again, J.D. Greer, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote the foreword to We Too, and Greer is in hot water right now because of something I reported. He hired Brian Loritz, and there are credible witnesses saying that Brian Loritz participated in a cover-up of sex crimes at Fellowship Memphis, this church that Loritz pastored 10 years ago. And unfortunately, what, what we're seeing from the church, at least from my perspective, is some statements that aren't necessarily addressing some of the discrepancies, some of the issues. And so far, they've been 
standing behind Brian Loritz and saying, no, you know, he, he didn't do anything wrong. When We have missing evidence. We have victims saying that he told them, you know, if they speak about this, there's going to be church discipline exercised against them. I mean, sounds like some pretty serious allegations. So how do you process that? I mean, J.D. wrote some pretty powerful stuff in your foreword. In fact, he wrote, during abuse, the voice is ignored or marginalized or silenced outright. How do we dare turn a blind eye and deaf ear to the vulnerable in our midst? We have J.D. Greer saying he's going to change this pattern, and yet he just hired somebody, and the sex abuse survivor community is going, what, what are you doing? So how do you reconcile that? What do you think of all that? Well, as I think about just in best practices of all churches, it is always better to have an independent investigation. So my encouragement would be to hire someone like Grace to have them look at it from the outside looking in, because there's really, when you're looking internally at a situation like this, it's hard not to protect the institution, but if you have an external person or people or um, entity looking at it to give you the actual, what is, this is the play-by-play, this is what happened, we've done this investigation, and then you can appropriately respond to it. And uh, it's very egregious when churches err on the side of PR rather mm-hmm. than doing what is right. And I'm not going to say that I know you know, all the facts in this particular case, but having that independent investigation would set everybody's mind at ease. And then the other thing I would say, and again, I'm not deeply familiar with this yet. Um, I need to be, but I, I am not yet deeply familiar with it. I would say that our position as believers is always to err on the side of over apology and deep humility. And so instead of carefully crafted statements Um, It's really important that we um, own anything that may have the appearance of evil and uh, almost over apologize for, you know, any sort of wrongs that we've done. So um, I know, J.D., we've met uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention last year. He's a good guy. Uh, He wrote the foreword to my book. I don't know all of the facts, but my recommendation looking from the outside in would be to have someone independently investigate this. Sure. And I appreciate you bringing up the independent investigation. However, I will say in the church, this independent investigation has become a buzzword that in some cases seems somewhat meaningless because, for example, one of the the cases that I just brought up was with Cedarville University, where we had Anthony Moore, who had confessed to voyeurism, those types of crimes, and then went to Cedarville. Then when this all came out, then Cedarville said, okay, uh, we're going to remove, the trustees removed uh, Thomas White from his position, said we're going to do an independent investigation. Then they hired a law firm. And (laughs) so you're laughing because I'm guessing you know what I know. So why can that be a problem? Two different kinds of investigations. Right. So what's the problem? The problem is, is the investigation, we saw this with, um, with Willow Creek. Mm-hmm. You have this kind of connected investigation that's about protecting reputation versus truly hiring someone that has no connection to the institution, whether it rises or falls. And so I guess that's where we have to really start finding those places that are truly independent. Now, the press, of course, is part of that. And we saw that in the Willow Creek situation as well, that it was the press that ended up revealing what was going on 
and the kind of side elder investigation never really amounted to anything. Um, whenever you have institutional protectionism, it's, it can get very dicey because you simply cannot see everything. And it takes a great deal of humility to be able to take the blinders off and see the problems within your midst. And that's why you need someone external and also not a PR firm or a law firm necessarily to it can be a law firm. I know that Grace has lawyers in it. So mm -hmm. it's not that that's only bad. For us as a public to trust it, there needs to be some sort of independence that's not connected to the leadership of the entity that they are uh, serving or uh, serving under. Yeah. In law firms, as I understand, because I've talked to Boss Division about this as well, and uh, the founder of Grace, godly response to abuse in Christian environments. And Boss says, that this fiduciary responsibility between a law firm, I mean, law firms have to represent the entity that hires them. Whereas Grace, if you hire them, an organization like that doesn't have that same fiduciary responsibility, even if they are paid by the entity. Um, it would be nice if we could work out a way where there's no you know, money exchange between the organization being investigated or the person, but that's hard to do. But again, there's a bit of a difference there. Well, let's turn to just abuse in the church and kind of why it happens and why churches, which should be the place where abuse is unheard of, yet in another way, they're ripe for abuse. And it's my understanding because you have trust because you have power differential and because you have sinful human beings. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I would love to be one of those naive people that say, okay, it's only this particular entity's problem and not ours. Mm -hmm. I think human nature is such that we would like to point to everybody else doing it poorly. Like I think the Protestants did a pretty good job of pointing to the Catholic church saying, oh, it's so bad. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, <laughs> not realizing that guess what? Sinners live in every institution and organization and religious institution. So um, I think that was actually what was so bad on the Protestant side of things is that there was this pride. Mm. And as I traced it through, one of the couple of things I did in We Too was I traced um, rape throughout the Bible, but I also traced our response to it throughout church history. Yeah. And what you find is there were a couple really light instances and like piercing of light throughout the Catholic Church of people that brought up particularly priest abuse of young boys. And there was reform that happened at least twice. But after the Reformation, the church had kind of a PR problem, and they kind of closed in on themselves, and it was all about protectionism. And the Protestant church absorbed that DNA. And so Catholic and Protestant have been keeping this issue silent for centuries. And so when it came out with the Catholic church, it was only a matter of time before it came out in ours as well. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it is a ripe place for predators because we in the church love to trust people or we think it's the right thing to do. And of course, it's good to trust people, mm -hmm. but we have a very naive view of predatory people. And because we have that naive view, predatory people are able to walk all over and um, take advantage of um, children and the vulnerable and and lots of different kinds of people. It's not just children. It's not just girls. It's men, women, boys, mm. girls, everybody. Mm. Um, but we have to become as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves to know what these predatory people are like and then to expose them and um, 
want to kick them out, <laughs> obviously, yeah. and send them to the authorities when they have committed a crime, which most of the time they have. Hmm. And I think part of the issue, too, is the fact that we can't wrap our heads around the fact that this man who sounds so good and brings the word of God to us could possibly be a wolf, right? I mean, because he's, he's maybe ministered to us through the word. And I remember in one of my investigations, I was speaking to someone and he was telling me about the origin of the word hypocrite. And it actually comes from the word that in Greek means actor. And that to me was was kind of like a, a light bulb went on. It's like, yeah, they're actors, but they're not who they say they are. And, and I think that's what's so difficult a lot of the time is that we want to trust that person who's up in front is who he says he is. And when he's not, it's, I mean, can it often be like a worldview kind of shift for, for people because they've always trusted that pastor? And it's hard, isn't it? I mean, as you talk to abuse survivors, do you hear them saying this sort of thing? Yeah, I call it the perfect world syndrome. And mm. what that means is we love to have a perfect world. And we understand that in the big bad world, things are not as they should be. But we want to be able to close our doors in our home and have a perfect world there. We want to be able mm. to walk into a church and have it be perfect there. If there's someone that damages that perfect world that we want, we will do everything to fight against it because we just can't live in a world that's not perfect. Now, if you read your Bible, you know that we're living... <laughs> In the now and the not yet. I mean, we're in this place of the kingdom of God is advancing. Um, awesome things are happening through the Holy Spirit in this church, but there is sin. And I think with gifted leaders in particular, we have to be very cautious about assigning fruit to gifts. Hmm. So when someone is gifted, we assign the fruits of the Spirit to that person automatically. We connect them, and we just assume that they have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And so that's why it's so hard when one falls. We think, well, they were so gifted, and we were thinking, actually, they were full of fruit. But giftedness and fruitfulness are two different things. And you can be an exceptionally charismatic person who leads people to Christ and then behind closed doors um, be ruining people's lives. Hmm. I want to talk about grace, too, because I think that's something, a word that's used and abused. And you talk about the history in the church. I thought it was really interesting in your book when you talk about St. Basil, for example. He said that those who seduce young men or boys should be publicly flogged and defrocked <laughs> and shall, quote, never again be allowed to associate with young men. Yet I heard it. I mean, with take the Anthony Moore situation, Dr. Thomas White said, I wanted to show him grace and give him a second oh, chance. Gosh. So we bring him in and we allow him to coach men, right? Oh, you know, young men on the, on the basketball team. It's mind boggling to me how we have taken grace to mean that not just that you can be restored to the church, but you can be restored to positions of leadership. Do you feel that if you sexually abused someone, is that a disqualifying sin where you shouldn't be in pastoral leadership or any kind of leadership where you have responsibility for the young and the vulnerable? Absolutely. They have been disqualified. They have broken the law. And I think part of the time we just forget that this is a law that mm. has been broken. Mm. When you molest someone, when you rape someone, you have broken the law. Now, whether or not you were convicted or not, it is still you are still the lawbreaker. And um, we, as the body of Christ, need to exercise discernment and wisdom 
And otherwise, we will be just as guilty of the cheap grace that Bonhoeffer talked about in Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the grace you just throw everywhere, and you never require any repentance. Well, repentance from a perpetrator, which is exceptionally rare, Mm. seldom happens, Mm -hmm. but if it does, repentance for them would look like not just words, but they would actually say, I struggle with wanting to perpetrate against this particular type of people. Therefore, I'm never going to be in a position of authority over those folks. And I won't even walk into a church if that's going to be a place where I'm going to be tempted to pray. I will watch church online or I will go to a support group. But because I love Jesus and I have repented and I feel so terrible about what I've done, I'm going to remove myself from those positions that tempt me. Um, That's what repentance looks like. And when someone has done something terrible and broken the law like that, if they demand that they be automatically put back in the pulpit, then they have not repented. And I'm sorry, they have not repented. I've seen, I'm going to get on a roll here, but I've seen so many disgraced pastors just jump. They give themselves like five months of restoration Mm. and they jump heartily back into the very place where they have abused people And it's egregious. And I just, I can't imagine that that's a godly thing to do. I understand that that's the only thing they know how to do, but they need to go learn how to be a plumber or something, because (laughs) if they have abused people and if they have, especially if they've, you know, spiritually abused people, that is no place for them. And they should understand their weakness and walk away from it in repentance. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad to hear you say that (laughs) because I I think you're absolutely dead on. And I think that needs to be said. And I think people need to start practicing it throughout the church, but we're not. Um, So tell me, let's just go for how do we change the dynamic that we're seeing in the church where we are protecting perpetrators instead of protecting victims? And I'm going to throw something out. This may be a little bit dicey, and I'll just say out front, I'm not even egalitarian. Um, But at the same time, I wonder sometimes when I see this, if Is part of this that there's a good old boy network and we don't have some women who are speaking to leadership and a part of leadership in some form where this dynamic continues to just happen again and again and again? I absolutely believe that that's true. And um, one of the things that's happened recently with me is I'm in contact with a church leader, male church leader, and he said, I... I feel like I, I'm being accused of some things of not being sensitive or whatever. And I feel like I need to learn from you about how I'm responding and to just have an honest conversation with you so I can see where I, where my blind spots are. Now that to me gives me hope. Mm. That's the way forward is that we stop siloing ourselves um, in groups of men and women, but we begin to have these kinds of conversations honestly, without viewing each other suspiciously and, you know, seeing each other as friends. Um, I am happy to have these kind of conversations. And uh, I don't think it's inappropriate for me to have a phone conversation with um, someone of the opposite sex to talk about how to be more sensitive to sexual abuse victims. I think more of these kind of conversations need to happen. Amen. You talk in your book about silence and how abuse victims are so often bullied into silence, and we see this dynamic happening where you just wish people would speak up, yet it's so hard to speak up when you're on the receiving end. Why are perpetrators so successful in getting their victims to say nothing? That's a really good question. I wish I had like 
all the sociological and theological <laughs> reasons for that. But I, I think I kind of go back to evil <laughs> and, you know, they have an ability, an evil ability to persuade because they have created a kingdom for their, for themselves with them as the king or queen. And they become very persuasive in having the person be a part of their subject of their kingdom. And if the subjects rebel against the kingdom, you've got all sorts of anarchy. And so there's great amounts of persuasiveness and shame and a lot of um, threatening things and a lot of Jesus-y language. You know, you don't want to bring shame on the church, do you? I Mm. mean, this people won't, I've heard this before, you'll cause people to go to hell if you bring this up, which is a lie from the pit of hell. But um, it's all about controlling a narrative at any cost. And I believe that is just from the pit of hell. Mm. We've seen emboldening of victims with the Me Too movement, with now the Church Too movement. And it, it is encouraging because you're seeing people say, I can speak up and I'm actually going to risk it and believe that people will believe me. But there's still, every time someone speaks, uh, it's a scary thing to do. And there will be people who will say, you are lying. So speak to the person right now who's maybe currently being abused or has been abused in the past and has never spoken up, has never brought this thing to light. Speak to that person. What should he or she do? I tell my audiences and write in my books is that an untold story never heals. Mm. And it's desperately important to find a safe person and share that story. My own story did not have that. And so when I finally told somebody when I was 10 years old or so, five years old when it happened, I was 15 after I met Christ and I told someone they would not believe me. They refused to believe me. And so I retold the story like five different times in five different ways, thinking there must be some sort of formula to tell the story Mm. to get someone to believe me. And finally, the person did believe me. Um, But right around that time, too, I was also being discipled by my Young Life leaders, and those folks loved me, and they listened. And so that was more healing to me than having to tell the story over and over again and not being believed. Um, So my encouragement is go into it knowing that someone might push back and not believe you. Mm -hmm. Try to choose someone that you know who's the most empathetic person that you know. But if they don't believe you, just cross that off your list and go to the next person because you cannot bear that untold story. It needs to come out of you. And you will find, you'll begin the road of healing once it's let out into the fresh, clean air. What's so sad is that often those who have been abused, though, they shrink from the church and with good reason. I mean, if I had been abused by someone who is in the church, I can understand not even wanting to go near the institution. But when you say, tell somebody you trust, there's probably some people listening who say, I don't know that I have someone that I trust. What do you do when you're in that situation? In that situation, I would at least um, grab a journal and write the whole story out so that at least it's not inside of you, but out on the neutral page. And then perhaps begin to pray and ask God to show you someone to show that journal to or write it on a letter form. And sometimes it's easier to write it and hand it over than to say it out loud. And people have a little bit 
better ability to absorb it if it's written than if it's told to them kind of off the cuff or they're not expecting it. But if you say, this is something I need to get off my chest, I'm really struggling, I need to know that someone sees me, here's this piece of writing that I've done, um, would you please read it and let me know what you think? Mm. I know it's interesting you mentioned that because Ann Lindbergh, who was someone, a sex abuse survivor who had been allegedly abused by Gil Bilzekian, who was the co-founder of Willow Creek Community Church. And I remember when we sat down to record something and she had written out, I, th- I forget how many pages, but I think it was like 64 pages. <laughs> and mm-hmm. But that process of writing out all of that enabled her then to succinctly tell her story and to share her story. And she had already done the work inside the process. So I think that's just a, a powerful word. I think that's an important, important advice and really, really helpful. Um, we're running close to the end of our time, and I do want to talk about the way forward as a church. Obviously, we've had a lot of starts and stumbles, and we're not doing this very well. But I sure would love to see us do this well. What are, you know, one or two key things that you feel the church can do right now and pastors who are listening can do right now in their local church that will make a difference and will make their church a safe place, a truly safe place for the weak and the vulnerable? I would first say that as a shepherd, you are to shepherd. And that means even bringing up uncomfortable things from the pulpit. For decades, I have been sitting in the back of churches, never hearing my story. There are people saying, oh, my marriage was you know, ruined, or I was addicted to porn, or I was addicted to drugs, and, and Jesus intervened. But I haven't heard the story of, I've been molested, I was raped, and this is how Jesus intervened. Mm. So here's my challenge. If you're a pastor out there, have someone like me come to your church and share a story of how Jesus intersects a rape story. Because I'm guaranteeing you, if you do that, the floodgates will be open. And I've on the we2.org, if you go to we2.org slash pastors, there's a whole PDF of all sorts of resources. Because I know I'm very empathetic toward people who are in church leadership. They're so busy. They're so stretched. Some of them are facing burnout. You don't have to bear the weight of every single story of your congregation, but you can certainly pass people, you know, listen, and then... Um, give them some great resources from your community to be able to help the people, um, you know, work through that. Another uh, resource that I've created is called Into the Light. It's a Bible study for women, and it's for those who either have a difficult story or those who want to help others that have difficult stories. And that's something I've found that's been really heartening over the past couple of years is hearing from people saying, I want to help. I don't understand trauma. I don't understand sexual abuse. My friend is hurting. I want to help, but I don't want to do the wrong thing. Or what, how do I? So I wrote that study, just came out. Hmm. And that can also be a really good resource. But really, really think about having those stories from the front of your church. And don't be afraid. Shepherd your people. They have that story. Lots of them do. So just say it out loud so people don't feel so dang alone anymore. I can't tell you how alone I have felt in church because of that. Mm. Do you have um, a success story where you've seen a church turn it around and actually make a real change from being a place where people really weren't safe, but now they do feel safe? I did mention one in week two, and I can't right now off the top of my head remember the name of the church, but it involved the 
the pastor from decades before who was tickling men's feet. Um, I don't know if you remember that story. Mm. And the new pastor apologized on behalf of the church, even though that wasn't even on his watch. And they did hire an, an independent investigation and they searched for victims and they repented of whatever you know happened in the past. And that to me was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it shows me that this is actually what people want. I don't know about you, but I'm so tired of cover-up. I'm so tired of, well, you know, I'm worried about money or I'm worried about my people coming and I don't want to have any disasters. You know what? I would rather go to a church where a pastor stood up and said, you know, 12 years ago, we had a youth pastor and he did this terrible thing and we're going to publicly repent before you and we're going to help the victims and we're going to, you know, do this and do that. I would trust that leadership over a leadership that said nothing. Isn't that just the gospel. Sometimes I wonder when I see the lengths that churches go to to try and protect their image, have we forgotten the gospel? I mean, it's just so basic. It's own your sin, confess your sin, repent of your sin. I mean, it's really not complicated, and yet we have such a difficult time doing it, don't we? Well, I, I just crafted a prayer this week for um, about uh, racism and racial reconciliation. And as I did, I remembered Daniel and Nehemiah and how they repented of the sins of their nation, even though they mm. didn't have those sins. And that was my take. I'm going to repent on behalf of others who have done this um, because that's a biblical imperative. And so, you know, we're so afraid about confessing sins and we don't want to have them pinned to us, but why not? We're supposed to be like Daniel and Nehemiah. We're supposed to own the sins of the past and say, we did it wrong. Yes. Okay, let's go. The best place to be is that humble place. Um, Jesus says, take the last seat at the banquet hall so that they can lift you up in the proper time instead of always trying to take the first seat at the banquet hall. We need to take that last seat. Mm, so good. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for your ministry. I just pray that God will continue to bless it and give you favor and just increase your ability to minister. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate all that you're doing. And it's um, I feel humbled and grateful to be on. Well, and thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And if you'd like to find me online, just go to julieroy's, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. Hope you have a great day and God bless. Mm-hmm.